So keep your Bibles on John chapter 1, 19 through 34. That's going to be our text for this morning. We've just been kind of working through the first chapter of John. I've really been enjoying it so far. I'll say that uh, the Apostle John who wrote this gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he began his gospel in the sort of prologue with these really, really big, bold doctrinal statements about who Jesus Christ is. Um, We've already covered things like his eternality, the fact that he's eternal, his deity, that he's God, that he's the source of all physical and spiritual life, that he is incarnate, the God-man. And last week we talked about how he is the unique, one-of-a-kind, only son from the Father or only begotten son, as it says in the NASB and other translations. So those are the things that we've covered so far about Christ. He is all of that and much more. Uh, In the next section, uh, John continues to build his case for Christ by presenting the testimony of one of the great witnesses to Christ, John the Baptist. So this particular text really contains two sections. In section one we will look at how John the Baptist testified to who he is. He was actually questioned and asked who he is, and he bore testimony to who he is. That's section one. In section two, uh, we will see how he testified to who Jesus is. Uh, So I think it's befitting that we pray one more time before we get in. Lord, uh, we just come to you and humble ourselves and ask that you teach us. And not just that it would be teaching and information and knowledge, but it would be transformative through the Holy Spirit. Make us more like Christ today as we learn more and more about Him. That really is the goal of of the salvation that you've graciously given to us, and that's to make us like Jesus. You've prepared us to do good works as He did as well. And so we just pray that that would happen today, that we would become a little bit more like Christ in our character, in our attitude, um, in our lifestyle, as we just listen to, to, the, to the gospel and to even John the Baptist's testimony. And what a, a humble, humble man he was, just constantly pointing to Jesus. And that's really what we're called to do. And so just help us to, to learn from you today, to apply, be transformed and to live these things out that we're learning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Section 1, section 1, verses 19 through 23. This is who John the Baptist is. Let's pick it up at verse 19. That's where we cut off last week. It says, And this is the testimony of John. That's the reference to John the Baptist there. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, The question they asked right off the bat is, who are you? Here we read that the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to basically investigate John the Baptist. Wanted to know what was going on with this guy. Now, the Jews, and you notice the word there, it says Jews capitalized. The Jews were likely members of the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent to the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It was comprised of 70 members, and you had Sadducees, which were political leaders, and you had Pharisees, who were religious leaders. You had this mix of of various types of Israelites or Jews, and they made up this thing called the Sanhedrin, which basically ruled over the religious and political affairs of the Jewish people. But they were... Um, subordinate to Rome, obviously, because Rome is the conquering power. If you read, or if you remember, actually, if you remember from Acts, how many of you guys date back to when we were in the book of Acts, when we actually first started our church? Yeah, many of you are still with us. That is a supernatural occurrence. Um, It's a miracle. Back when we were looking at Acts... Uh, we discovered, really, we talked about the Sanhedrin several times. We saw what they were actually doing uh, with the apostles and stuff. I remember, I think it was back in chapter 4, 
where Peter, the Apostle Peter, and John, the, the author of this gospel, were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were told to stop preaching the gospel. If they didn't stop, they would suffer the consequences. Uh, and then in chapter 5, verse 40 of, of Acts, we see that they did not comply and they were flogged, which means whipped. Stephen, you remember Stephen, that, uh, what a tremendous man of God he was, just a full-blown, sold-out Christ follower. He was actually put to death by the Sanhedrin. We, we think of Saul of Tarsus being involved in that, and he was. But, man, if you go and look at the reference in chapter 7, 54 through 60, you'll see that really it was the Sanhedrin that was behind the stoning of him and his murder. Uh, the Apostle Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. Chapter 22, verse 30, he also caused a riot in the Sanhedrin. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 10. That was a, a great story there that he just basically pit the Sadducees against the Pharisees and they just started brawling and it turned into just a mess. Paul's just sitting there going, look what I did. It's crazy. But before any of these events occurred, before any of these things happened, this same Sanhedrin sent a delegation to investigate John the Baptist. Okay, so they're actually behind this thing here. They're the ones that sent these guys out there. And why, why is that that the Sanhedrin did this? Well, it's because John the Baptist's ministry had, had grown very, very large and uh, sort of captured the attention of everyone in Judea and other places, especially the Sanhedrin. And quite frankly, the Sanhedrin was very, very concerned, very concerned the priests, you see the word priest, they were sent, these priests were sent to John the Baptist. They served as the theological authorities and performed various religious rites and ceremonies. So that's priests. When they were not on duty serving at the temple, they traveled throughout the land as local experts on the law. So they would go throughout the land and go to the various synagogues, and uh, preach Judaism and the law and those things and, and make sure that everyone was squared away on their theology. The Levites here, you notice that word there as well, and that's capitalized, that's interesting. Typically, when we think of a Levite, we think of the priesthood, but that's not what it means here. This is the security detail, okay? These Levites were sent to protect the priests, uh, the temple police force, and it's kind of crazy to think, you know, that, that you had religious police, police that served in a religious capacity, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't theology they were enforcing per se. It was just regular laws that pertain to all things religion and the temple and the functions of the temple. And so you had this police force, a literal police force, that was comprised of Levites, and uh, so you have basically the Sanhedrin sending priests. That would be the experts in the Mosaic law. And then you have Levites being sent as well, and that would be the temple police. And where did they go? They went to the riverside, into the wilderness, to investigate John the Baptist. So that's what we've seen so far. When they arrived, they came to him and basically asked, Who are you? Who are you? Tell us who you are. Look at John's response in verse 20. It's amazing. He, he doesn't actually tell them who he is. He tells them who he isn't a couple of times here. It says in verse 20, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Notice the double emphasis. But confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Christ translates in Hebrew as Messiah. I am not the Messiah is what he has said right there. John obviously felt that it was necessary to clear up any confusion about his identity. Uh, like I said, his ministry had become fairly large. He became very popular. You've even got the religious 
folks and the religious police out there checking him out and investigating. So he became very, very big, and he was aware of what people were thinking about him and what people were saying about him. Things like, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that God sent to come and rescue us from the Romans. Maybe he's the one that, the, that Moses talked about and the prophets talked about. This is what was kind of spinning in the minds of the people at that time. So he knew that people were thinking that of him. And this is why he told them straight up, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. The Sanhedrin may have thought that John the Baptist was just another false messiah. That was probably what they were thinking. Okay, we've got another guy. He's amassing a crowd. He's got a religious message. He could be like many of the false messiahs that we've had that have risen up. He could be dangerous. We need to go check him out. That's probably what they were thinking. And it's, it's kind of funny to think that false messiahs were very, very common in those days. Josephus, the ancient historian, recorded the story of, of one such individual. Herod the Great, he was the great, uh, greatest king of the Herodian dynasty. He was the one that built and developed most of Israel and palaces and everything else. He was the, the big dog of the Herod group. He had a slave by the name of Simon of Perea who later claimed to be Israel's Messiah, literally. At one point, he amassed followers. He gathered followers. People were listening to, to his message, Simon's message. They you know, started to believe that maybe he is the anointed Christ who's come to deliver us. And so he had all of these followers that started kind of attaching themselves to him. And at, some, at one point, they actually crowned him king over Israel. I don't know, they took some kind of a diadem or something, they placed it on his head and said, you're our king. Not Herod the Great or anyone else, you're our king. And that remind you of what happened with Jesus when after he fed a bunch of people, performed a miracle, they tried to crown him and he disappeared and went off to pray. Well, that's exactly what happened with this guy, but he didn't say, no, I'm not your king and go off and pray. He took the he took the crown and said, Amen, brothers, let's do this. He literally at that point set out to dethrone the Herodian dynasty as well as the Romans. He took his band of loyalists, and I don't know if it was hundreds or teens or thousands. I don't know how many he had. He had a lot, I suppose. But he took this band of loyalists, and he went to Jericho, and he attacked the royal palace, literally burned it down and plundered anything and everything that was left. And Herod responded by sending his military commander, Gratus, to dispatch him. Gratus assembled a mixed force of Israeli and Roman soldiers and marched to Jericho. When they arrived, they battled against Simon's forces for several days until they completely destroyed them, killed everyone. I mean, you have Roman soldiers in this group, and they were tough. But Simon of Perea basically escaped and fled into the mountains, but Gratus was faster than he was. He was very, very swift, and maybe he was on horseback, maybe Simon was not, I don't know, but he chased him down in the mountains, and he apprehended him. Gratus was commanded beforehand to execute Simon, the Messiah, if you want to call him that, right on the spot. As soon as he captured him, he drew his sword and lopped off his head. And that uprising was brought to an end right there. Now, this actually happened when John the Baptist was about 15. So Jesus was roughly 15, maybe 14 and a half when this happened. What I'm telling you is that these things happened all the time, even while Jesus was a teenager. People were always rising up, and there's the new Messiah. I remember at one point, the Apostle Paul was questioned. People said, are you that Egyptian who rose up with all those assassins and caused all that havoc for Rome? It was very, very common. So I think that the Sanhedrin may have thought that we've got to deal with another false Messiah here. So imagine how they must have been pretty relieved when John the Baptist said, I'm not the Christ. <sighs> we've just got some other weirdo out here. It's not going to be a guy who's posing as the Messiah, and we're going to have to deal with him in that capacity. 
These things were still fresh in the minds of people. Look at 21a. So they kind of continued, right? The priests and the Levites continued to question him. They said, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. I'm not the Christ, and I'm not Elijah. Why did they ask John if he is Elijah? Who is Elijah? Elijah is the Old Testament prophet who challenged King Ahab and that dastardly wife of his, Queen Jezebel. And believe me, Ahab was no better. That was the, probably the most wicked couple to ever reign over the tribes of Israel. They were horrible. It was back in the 9th century B.C. Elijah is the central character uh, in a face-off with the prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that story? 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. Elijah was the guy that had that, that showdown with all those prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal is false Canaanite god. Uh, these prophets called upon their god all day long to rain fire from heaven, but nothing happened. And Elijah then builds an altar of stones, digs a ditch around it, puts the sacrifice of on top of the wood and calls for water to be poured over his sacrifice so it's completely saturated and he fills the little moat he built around it. Three times he does this. So those, those false prophets are calling on their false god, burn this thing up and prove that you are the most powerful and greatest god. Nothing happens. Crickets. Every time they call out, they're like, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. What are you doing, Baal? Right? Elijah does the same thing. Calls upon God. And then God sends fire down from heaven. Burns up the sacrifice. Burns up the wood. Burns up the stones. Now that's hot. And licks up all of the water in the little moat. God proved that He was far more and will always be far more power. Infinitely more powerful than any idol or false god. At that point, it is Elijah uh, that basically, uh, and, and the people who were with him, the Israelites who were with him, who kill all of the false prophets of Baal. They go and kill all of those fake ministers. When Elijah's ministry concluded, he was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2.11, which means he never even tasted death at all. He was just taken right up to God. Pretty amazing. The Jews believed that Elijah would return when the Messiah first appears. So there's the connection, and that's why they're asking, are you Elijah? You can read about that in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5. The priests figured if John isn't the Christ, if he isn't Messiah, maybe he is Elijah back from heaven. And the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, that might, might have been what was going through their minds. But when they asked if he is Elijah, he gave an answer they probably didn't want to hear. Man, we hope he's Elijah, but he said, I am not. I am not. John was not actually Elijah as the Jews expected. Instead, he was Elijah-like, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, According to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, um, that is the actual interpretation of Malachi's prophecy. John the Baptist was kind of like Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. He, he did the same things that Elijah would do. So there's the parallel um, that prophecy in Malachi has to do with one like Elijah coming when Messiah first appears. But since the Jews rejected John the Baptist's message, since they rejected the one he pointed to, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they were unable to rightly understand Malachi's prophecy. They continued to question John. Look at 21b. So they've said, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? No, no. And then here they go, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. No. I just love these answers. Let your yes be yes, and your, well, no, but let me tell you why. He just says, no, no, no. These are terse, quick answers. And I'll tell you what, he's irritating them at this point. 
because he's not really describing or saying who he is. He's just saying, no, no, no. Pretty awesome. He just says, no, no, I'm not the prophet. Who is the prophet? Or what is this prophet? Do you notice something about the word there? And I'm sure it's like this in every English translation. What do you notice about it? Do you see the capitalization? So it's not just a role or a duty, it's a person. It's an actual identity, right? Who is the prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, it says God will raise up a prophet like Moses, and he will speak the word of God, and the people need to obey him. When this prophet rises up, he will preach the word of God, and the people need to obey him. It's like God sending to his people this prophet. Some believe that this prophet would be a, a forerunner of the Messiah, like Elijah. Others believe that, that he is Messiah, and that's why it's capitalized there. The second view is the correct view. And we know this to be true because Peter and Stephen both applied the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus. They tied the prophet of that passage to Jesus, Acts chapter 3 and chapter 7. Jesus is the prophet whom Moses spoke about. He appeared and spoke the word of God, gave revelation. Did the people do as God commanded way back in Deuteronomy 18? Did they obey the words of the prophet Jesus when he came? No. They disobeyed him. They rejected him. They turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. They did the exact opposite of what God told them to do. And that is precisely what all human beings do naturally. Just disobey. How did John respond this time? He did the same thing that he did the last two times. No. No. And we must understand that that John the Baptist was the prophet of Christ. He bears that title. He's not just a prophet of Christ. He's considered the prophet of Christ, the unique, specific prophet who announced Christ at the time that Christ was on earth with him. So he is the prophet of Christ, but he is not the prophet who is Christ. There's a difference. At this point, the priests and Levites became exasperated by John's string of terse, negative replies, and they began to assert their authority. Look at 22. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You can just sense the exasperation and frustration here in the words. It's like, hey, quit playing games, pal. Who are you? we got to give an answer. Just so you know, we've been sent by higher authority. You need to tell us what's going down here. This was literally their way of saying, you better tell us who you are. We have been sent on official business, and that's exactly what police officers tend to be doing. When they're out there trying to conduct business, I'm sure our two police officers in the back can attest to this, it's not time to play games. We're here on official business. Answer the questions. Do what I'm telling you to do. That's exactly what they're doing here. We have been sent on official business. Tell us who you are. What do you say about yourself? Well, John was not in any sense or in any way at all troubled by their threat here. He was not afraid of them at all. He had no fear. And he decided to oblige them nonetheless. John the Baptist wanted clarity among people. He wanted people to know who he is and who Christ is. But that didn't prevent him from giving short, quick answers and trying to stick to his mission. And this is where he testified to who he is. Okay, I'm not this, this, or this. And now it's, here's who I am. Look at 23. John replied, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
700 years earlier, Isaiah foretold the coming of a special prophet who would appear right before the Messiah came or was unveiled. This special prophet would appear in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. It's what the prophecy says. He would cry out or announce the coming of the Lord and prepare the people for His arrival. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, I just want you to think about John the Baptist's location. Where was he? He was in the wilderness on the bank of the Jordan River. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. That's where he's standing right here when this happened. I want you to think about John the Baptist's message. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's preparatory for the people. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the people. He preached, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? You got Mark 1, 4 there. You got Matthew 3, 2. You got the passage we're looking at. John 1, 35 through 36. John fit Isaiah's description to a T. And he knew who he was. He knew who he was. John looked into the delegate's eyes and replied, You want to know who I am? Is that what you want to know? I am the one whom Isaiah spoke about. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. That's who he was, and that's what he tells those officers that are there to investigate him. But I'll tell you what, this was more than an answer. This wasn't just, this is who I am. This was a challenge to them and to anyone who was hearing and listening. And I'm sure this happened in front of a large group. It was a challenge to both the nation and to his questioners to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. So it's not just, this is who I am. It's, I'm here to get people ready, including you, because he is coming. It says here that make straight the way of the Lord. Get the idea of clearing a path for the Lord to come and to walk upon, to do His ministry. The path of the Lord needed to be cleared. It needed to be smoothed out. Think of it in spiritual categories. The hearts of the people had become a proverbial wasteland covered with thorns and, and thistles and weeds totally overgrown. There's no clear path here. It's overgrown. You know how it is when you let your yard go a little bit. doesn't take long to get out of shape, especially if you're watering. If you're not, it just gets dry. But the hearts of the people were like a path that was crowded by thorns and thistles and weeds. Why? Because of years and years of disobedience, years and years of rebellion. The Israelites were notorious for this. And John had been sent as a kind of landscaper to to knock down the weeds and and clear a path for the Lord through his preaching and, and through his baptism ministry. That's what it means to make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the people's hearts through the proclamation of the Messiah is here and the kingdom is here and repent, repent, repent. Now John's answer no doubt took the delegates by surprise and probably offended them. I'm sure they were able to connect the dots. Okay, he's the one Isaiah talked about, and now look at what he's telling us. We need to get ourselves ready for the Lord. Yeah, does he not know who we are? We're already ready. We're the most religious people on the face of the earth. This is what's twirling around in their minds. Their response in 24 through 25 indicates that they were not happy with John's identification of himself at all. They were ticked. Now let's begin to move, or let's actually move to section 2. This is where John the Baptist testifies to who Jesus is. Okay, that's section 2. This is verses 24 through 34. Ten verses. I want to pick it up at 24 and 25. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Then 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? 
So section 2 begins with a parenthetical statement. You can see the parentheses, parentheses there, right? You can see the parenthetical statement. It begins with that where the author, the Apostle John, identifies the source for the inquiry. The Sanhedrin was, as I said, comprised of both Sadducees and Pharisees, but they actually had more Sadducees on the board than Pharisees at this time. It was the Pharisees, that group of Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, that came together and, and, and put this delegation together and sent them out to the riverside to begin with. The Pharisees were the experts in the Mosaic Law, whereas the Sadducees were those political experts. Back in verse 19, the Apostle referred to them as what? We already covered it. Jews with a capital J. So when we see Jews in this Gospel, it could be a reference to the Pharisees. It could be a reference to the Pharisees and not just the Jewish people in a generalized way. And I'll tell you what, the word Jews appears 62 times in John's Gospel, which means John talked about the religious leaders and the Pharisees a whole lot. Why? Because they were the, the true, broader in the broader sense, opposition to their own Messiah. So we've got to be careful as we're studying the text to not to not confuse the Jewish people with the Jews who were the actual leaders and the opposers of Christ. In verse 25, what do we see in verse 25? After the parenthetical, we see the delegation standing before John, challenging and questioning his authority. They said, in effect, if you are not the Christ, if you are not Elijah, if you are not the prophet, and these would be like the biggest, most recognized leaders in Judaism, right? If you're not those three, then why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? You know, it's like they're saying, who gave you the right to go out here and baptize people in some repentant way or whatever it is that you do? Who gave you the charge to do this? Who gave you the right to do this? You know, they're the religious authorities, We didn't tell you you could do this. And if you're not those three guys who outrank us, then why are you out here doing this? This is what they're saying to him. These same religious types questioned the authority of Jesus when he was preaching at the temple. Who gave your Jesus of Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of that dump. That's like Erlemart. You're the Messiah? Get the heck out of here. You're not... Then listen, who gave you, did, Jim, did you tell, Fred, did you tell him he could come up here in the temple and preach like this? Let's call up the high priest. Hello? You know, who gave you the authority? They did the same thing to him. Jesus out there preaching. What, what are you doing here? You don't have the right, nobody has authorized this. It would be like somebody coming in here and preaching. I'd be like, who's that up there? What are you doing? Now, if you out preach me, I'd say, keep him. You know? If he started preaching some heresy, I'd say, get him. But they were just blown away by it. John, you're out here doing this, and you're not any of these, the big wigs, and we didn't send you. Who gave you the right to do this? I love what Jesus did in Matthew 21, 23 through 27, when his authority was questioned. He did what he did so brilliantly. He flipped it on him by asking them a question, ended up making them look like fools. John The Baptist's response right here is is also brilliant. He had absolutely no need to justify himself, to justify his ministry, right? To defend himself in any way. No desire, no feeling that he needed to do that, no desire or anything to do anything like that at all. And what he does is he turns the attention away from himself onto the one or toward the one who really matters. So he's affronted by them, questioned, kind of denounced. I don't know why you're out here doing this. Nobody gave you the authority. And he's like, I'm not going to talk about me anymore. I answered your questions. We need to talk about somebody else, the one who really matters. And this is where we start seeing how he testified to Jesus, who Jesus is, right? Now look at 26 through 28. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And I'll just add, one you will never know. You will never 
you don't know who he is. He's in your midst, and you'll never know him. That's not what John said. That's my interpretation of it, because guess what? These same people never repented and believed in Jesus. In fact, they got him killed. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then there's that little note there in 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This was John's way of saying, you guys are concerned about me? You're concerned about my baptism ministry? You're concerned about my authority? You need to be concerned about the one who stands among you. The one whom you do not know. The one who comes after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So he totally deflects away from himself. Who was he talking about? He was talking about the true prophet, capital P. He was talking about the Word became flesh. He was talking about none other than Jesus And you got to understand, at this point, if we want to think of the chronology and timeline, at this point, Jesus had already been baptized by John, identified and authenticated by the Father, because you remember what the Father said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son. He'd already been anointed with the Holy Spirit. He had already been tempted in the wilderness. All of these things have transpired. It's neat to think about, right? Because John doesn't really provide an accurate chronology. But these things have already happened. They have to if you're going to interpret the text right. And before beginning his, his ministry, before actually starting his ministry, after he came down out of the wilderness, after the 40 days and 40 nights of temptation, Jesus came to the riverside several times and listened to John the Baptist preach. He came down there before he started his ministry, and he came down and listened to him preach. He hung out down there. He was in the midst of the people. Jesus was probably standing among the people when this went down. John the Baptist was probably looking right at Jesus when he nuked the priests and the police, the popo, right here. He's probably looking at him. There's one, oh, there he is. There's one standing among you. See him over there? It's incredible to think. Jesus was probably there. The apostle added a a nice little detail in 28, telling us that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. How many of you have heard of the town of Bethany? Okay, this is not that town of Bethany. This is a different place. The atheists jump on this and say, look, there's a contradiction, blah, 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 blah. It's not true. This is not the town of Bethany that was near Jerusalem next to Bethphage, two towns that were close. This is a different place altogether, and we know very, very little about it. This is where this took place, in this area called Bethany along the river. So, this is the first example of how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. He is the one who comes after me, the one who is greater than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. There's the first way he testifies to who Jesus is. Look at 29. Now we jump over to the next day. A whole evening has passed, nightfall. It's the next day now, and it's interesting. Uh, From the moment that these religious leaders came over and questioned John, to the first, Jesus' first miracle at, at Cana, it's like one week, a one-week span. So there is a chronology here. It says, the next day, speaking of John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a statement, right? Coming right out of the pike, both barrels, boom! Big, big, big big statement about who Jesus is. Jesus is actually walking toward him when he literally stops doing what he's doing. I don't know if he was mid-flight doing a baptism, holding the guy underwater. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Quit squirming. 
I don't know if he was in the middle of preaching. I don't know what, but he stops. He points to Jesus in front of everyone and identifies him as the Lamb of God. Amazing. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the exclamation point. He said this boldly and and with authority. He didn't have any authority, right? Yeah, that's what some people thought. Exclamation point. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, the concept of a sacrificial lamb was a familiar one to the Jewish people. God had revealed to Israel very clearly that sin and separation from Him could be removed only by blood sacrifices. This is why God gave His people the sacrificial system. It was a temporary system. It was meant to pave the way for the final sacrifice. Can you think about that? Every lamb that was sacrificed from basically from the time of Adam and Eve, because there was a sacrifice that took place there, from that moment all the way up to this, every lamb, and we're talking probably millions and millions of lambs being sacrificed, every one of those lambs was intended to point to the ultimate sacrifice, to the Lamb of God. All of that was meant to point to Jesus, pave the way for the ultimate and final sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary, at Golgotha, that skull-shaped hill, right? His sacrifice and His sacrifice alone is sufficient in providing permanent forgiveness and permanent cleansing to all who repent and come to Him by grace through faith. That's the difference between the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and a normal lamb. The normal lamb provides, by faith, temporary cleansing and forgiveness. That's why they had to keep coming and doing them every year and every day. So, But with Jesus, His sacrifice was sufficient to make it permanent. So important that we understand this. Now, what did John the Baptist mean when he said, takes away the sin of the world? What did he mean? Did he preach universal atonement here where Jesus literally takes away everyone's sin? No. No, that's not the right way to translate this text. That would be, that interpretation would be in conflict with a lot of other scripture, and scripture is never in conflict. There's tension there because of our limited understanding. But it doesn't have to do with Jesus died for every single person and they're all forgiven. It's not universal salvation. It does not literally mean that he took away the sins of every single person. It does not mean that. It can't mean that because that means that everyone would be forgiven and repent and believe. And we already know people perish. So it's not universal salvation. It's not a universal atonement. Here's the right way to understand this text because John the Baptist understood what he was actually saying. He understood that Jesus, the Lamb of God, had been sent by the Father to remove the sins of the world in the sense of every type of person, every tribe and tongue, every type, every every generation, every ethnicity, okay? Why am I playing some, you know, theological gymnastics here to have it fit into my reformed theology or whatever? No, not at all. I want you to understand the context. The people that he's preaching to thought the Messiah came for them and them alone. Jews today believe that. Our Messiah, our Christ, is not for anyone but us. That's their theology. We're the chosen people. We've been given the law and all the prophets and all that. The Messiah is coming for us. He's not for dirty dog Gentiles. He's not for sinners. That is their theology. And so John the Baptist destroyed that preconceived notion, that theology right here by saying, he's the Savior that takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away from all sorts of people. Well, right there, the Jews are going, oh, this guy's a false teacher. He's got to be a false teacher because our Messiah would never do such a thing. They literally believed and still believe today that Messiah is their Messiah and their Messiah alone. And I'm telling you, John the Baptist blew it wide open right here. Blew it wide. Even Peter, the apostle, had a hard time with 
with believing that Jesus had come to save Gentiles until he had that crazy dream where he's told, kill and eat. It didn't really represent him killing and eating, but it represented all the animals that are, that are available to eat really represent the fact that God has come and sent Jesus to die for all sorts of people. So go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go up to Cornelius' house and preach to that Greek person and watch what I do. The Jews had a problem with this. They couldn't stand the idea. And let me tell you something right now. This meaning here of every tribe and tongue, every kind throughout the entire world and every generation the same exact interpretation and meaning is applied to John 3.16. And this is where people go wrong. He so loved the world, they believe that he died for every single person. If he died for every single person, God does not do anything by happenstance or chance. He's not a gambler. Everything he does is efficacious, appointed, exact, precise. What he does, he does, and he does. So if that's true, then every single person is going to get saved. You believe like Rob Bell. It's not true. You have to apply the same meaning to 316. For God so loved the world. Here's my parenthetical statement. People from every tribe and tongue, not just Jews, not just Jews. That's what John is saying. Not just Jews. That he what? Sent his only begotten son. And here's the kicker, that whoever believes in him, that excludes a whole lot of people, doesn't it? Because not everyone believes, right? Shall not perish and have eternal life. So this is the second example of how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. Who is he? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I just want you to maybe underline that, word, that pair of words right there in your Bible, takes away. Once they are taken away from that repentant person who has the Holy Spirit, who believes in Jesus, they are gone as far as the east is from the west. Takes away, removed, done, done. All right, now look at 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. While still pointing at Jesus, right? Because he already pointed at him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's still pointing at him. He's still saying, look, he's right there. While still pointing at Jesus, John basically told his audience, he is the one I told you about. So John has already been mentioning Jesus and preaching Jesus. He's the one I told you about, the one who, who comes after me. But he actually outranks me because he was before me. Right here, John boldly declared two things about Jesus. First, he declared his deity. He declared his deity. That is what ranks before me means. Ranks before me, you can translate it as has surpassed me. That's what it says in the NIV. He's greater than me. He outranks me. It's not just that he comes before me. He actually is higher than me. He has surpassed me. He is greater and higher than me. Why? Because he is God. He is deity. Second, he declared his eternality. That is what is meant by he was before me. Oh, you got to understand, he's here right now, but he has existed for all eternity. He might be here with us right now in the flesh, but in spirit as God, He has existed forever and ever and ever. In fact, He has no beginning. This is essentially what John the Baptist is preaching right here. He is God. He is eternal. It's like John the Baptist understood the first couple of paragraphs of John's gospel. He, he was before. He is God. He understands all of this. This is the third example of how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. He is greater and higher than me because he is God, because he is eternal. Look at 32 and 33. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In 32 it says, And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
John tells his audience, and it's like a confession here, he tells his audience that he did not know that Jesus was Messiah until he witnessed the supernatural sign of his Messiahship. Now, this is really interesting because John and Jesus were cousins, so you know they spent some time together. It reminds me of how Jesus' half-brothers did not recognize Jesus, their own half-brother, they did not recognize him as Messiah when they all lived under the same roof. The truth is, no one will recognize Jesus as Messiah unless God performs a supernatural work in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. We call it regeneration. When God sent John into the wilderness to baptize, God told him how he would identify Messiah. My little paraphrase. When you are baptizing, you will see the Spirit descend from heaven and remain on one of your subjects. He is the Messiah. When you see that happen, that's how you'll know that you've just baptized the Messiah. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This means that John's baptism had a twofold purpose. It wasn't just about repentance and preparing the people. I think the primary point of it was to identify the Messiah to Israel. No wonder John baptized so many people. He was trying to find the Messiah. He literally baptized hundreds, if not thousands of people. But we need to be careful here. Jesus was not baptized for the same reason as everyone else. He was not a sinner who needed to repent. His baptism was about identification. That's it. This is how I will identify the Messiah to the people. You will baptize him, not because he's a sinner, but because he's the Savior, and you will see the Spirit come down, and that's where you can adjust your message and start proclaiming that he's here. So it's all about identification. And the Father spoke and identified his Son. It's all about authentication as well. That's why Jesus got baptized. This is the fourth example of how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. He is the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained, and he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Being washed with water is, is, is one thing, but, but being washed by the Spirit is quite another. Water provides a temporary cleansing, right? We take a shower the next day or that evening, we got to take another one. So it's a, it's a temporary cleaning of sorts, right? But the Spirit provides permanent cleansing, we're not talking about being washed by water here and, and having the, the dirt washed off of us. We're talking about spiritual baptism where the Holy Spirit invades and comes in and sets up the abode of God in us and washes us clean and permanently washes away our sin. It is the blood of Jesus that our sins are completely forgiven, and it is through the Holy Spirit that our sins are completely washed away. Okay? Last verse, 34. John says, and I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. He's still pointing at Jesus. He's called him the Lamb of God. He said, he's the one that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who was anointed with the Spirit. And guess what? Here it is again. He is the Son of God. He's pointing right at him. How did John know that Jesus is the Son of God. How was He able to connect the dots? Well, what have I already cited? What did the God the Father say at Jesus' baptism? Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, capital S, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. That's how John the Baptist knew that he was the Son of God. John heard the testimony of God the Father at the baptism. He believed it, and he repeated it here in verse 34. This is the fifth example of how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. So here's a, here's a John the Baptist's testimony in a nutshell, or a quick summary. Number one, I am not the Christ. And when I consider his own words there, I'm astonished that he had people that thought he was Christ into the second century. <laughs> I am not the Christ. Let me tell you something right now. Ignorance is not bliss. It leads to death. 
you better get this right about Christ. You better believe that you're not the Christ and nobody else is. He says, I am not the Christ. That's number one. Number two, I am not Elijah. Three, I am not the prophet. That's a reference to Messiah. Number four, I am Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Number five, Jesus is the one who comes after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Number six, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Number seven, Jesus is greater and higher than me because He is God and He is eternal. Number eight, Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained and He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Think of Pentecost. And think of every truly converted people who, is, who are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And number nine, he says, Jesus is the Son of God. That, my friends, is the testimony of John the Baptist. I think he knew who he was, and I'm pretty sure he knew who Jesus is. Amen? Now let's wrap it up. <clears throat> Here's your application. And I'm telling you, you can apply this text any way you want. I'm sure that you've already been pondering things and considering things, but here's, and it's just amazing when you're doing things that aren't related to your study time and, you know, you're, you're cleaning yourself up, you're out working in the yard and then, and then you get the idea and you get the application. It happens to me all the time. I'm sitting there trying to figure out an application. I don't get it. If I go find something else to do, it clicks. I run back in there. I thought you were done with your sermon. I got it. Right? Yeah, do, 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 do. I don't know who made that sound, but that's exactly what goes through my mind when I'm walking away. Do, 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 do. Here it is. John the Baptist's service to the Lord caught attention and raised concern. Did it not? People came and investigated who he is and what he was doing. Didn't they? So... My question to you and to me is, does our service to the Lord produce a similar effect in and with people? Think about it. Does your service to the Lord cause others to wonder what's going on, to maybe even get them to come over and ask you? You know how Scripture says, be ready to testify to the joy you have? You must also understand that the gospel is really a stumbling block. Christ is a stumbling block to people. If you're proclaiming Christ, you're, you're going to raise some eyebrows and maybe get questioned. If you, if, if you're, if you serve the Lord faithfully, it's going to happen. So my question is, is that what's happening with you? Are, 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 are you getting the attention of people around you? And, and, and are they questioning, who are you? And why are you doing what you're doing? And I'd say, if, if that's not happening, then, then maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe we're, we're being too covert, right? Well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I'm a secret service Christian. You know, I, I fly under the radar, dog. You know, I only say what I got to say, you know, when I got to say it. I'm covert. That's why I wear cam camouflage all the time, man. If somebody asks, then I tell them. But beyond that, I just that happens, guys. Or maybe we're we're being part-time servants of the Lord, where everything we do for Him happens behind these four walls. You know that happens, right? Oh yeah, I serve the Lord. Uh huh. How do you do that? Well, I, I set out the communion every week. Well, that's, that's awesome. Is that all you do? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I read the scripture once in a while in front of the church, or you know, I play, play some music and all that. So, so what you're saying is you're, the entirety of your service to the Lord is contained within the four walls of the church. Let me tell you something. I want to, first of all, thank you for serving the Lord in the church because, you know, that's where we're first to serve is the body. But you ain't doing it outside of that. We got a problem. You see, you're not going to capture people's attention and cause them to, to be concerned or to question you at all if you, if you, if you keep it all here. You're not going to have Christians come up and go, who are you and what are you doing? 
Well, you might if you're doing their service. Put down those communion wafers. Those are, that's my job. See, I got questioned. No, you jacked up and did someone else's job. See, if you're covert, you're not going to raise any eyebrows and get anyone questioning you. If you're, if, if you're a part-timer, and you just do things here and that's it, and you don't do anything out there, you don't represent Christ out there in the real world, in the world itself, then you're not going to... Or maybe, maybe it's just the fact that you're not serving Him at all. You don't serve Him in the church, you don't serve Him outside of the church. That happens. So, so what if maybe, maybe you do serve Him in and out and all that, and... What if you did capture the attention? And I'm sure that maybe if anyone and everyone that's a Christian here at one point has probably captured the attention of someone and been questioned. I think it happens to every believer. What if you catch the attention of others and they come and investigate you? What would you say? Well, I'll tell you, this is what I do, and this is what I did, and this is what I did. Me, 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 me. Well, that's happening today. Me, 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 well, he's good, but me, 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 me. Well, hopefully we would say very little about ourselves and a lot about Jesus because that's exactly what John the Baptist did. 